0: What is up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is none other than David McRaney. And I'm so excited, not only for you all to listen to this, but for us to talk about so many interesting things that I've been waiting to ask him for so long. He's one of my favorite authors. He really introduced me to the topic of like making better decisions and understanding the different thinking areas that we have. So I was super excited to have him on. But anyways, before I introduce the conversation and David and all that fun stuff, if you're new here, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, make sure you're following it. Uh, I read hundreds of nonfiction books every single year. I love to learn. I love to be curious and find out all sorts of different stuff. So if you're into that, I'm always bringing on authors and yeah, we do this thing weekly, sometimes a little bit more if I get a bunch of interviews scheduled. So make sure you subscribe and make sure you're following. And for all of you who are current subscribers to the podcast, make sure you're following me over on social media at the rewired soul on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all that good stuff. All right. But anyways, David McRain, all right? So the first book I read from him, it's one of his bestsellers, all right? It's called, You Are Not So Smart, all right? Some of you may be familiar with it. It started out as a blog and he turned it into a book, but he goes through in a very nice, condensed way, all of our different biases, heuristics, the fallacies that we uh, use in our different arguments, all of these different things. And i loved it then i read his his next book you are now less dumb and when i heard that he had another book coming out because i was actually trying to get david on a while back he's like hey i got another book coming out so yeah he sent me an early copy of his brand new book it comes out june 21st it's called how minds change because this is a a question that david's had you know since he started on this journey like what actually gets somebody to change their mind, right? Like we always have these like debates and arguments, all these different things. And we don't actually know what happens. How do we get somebody to change their mind? And this is something that I'm very interested in because I'm a recovering drug addict. And it took a lot for me to change my mind and realize that, hey, maybe I don't have to drink and use drugs and I could be sober. And I'm actually coming up on 10 years this month. But that was kind of my first experience with this. But obviously, you know, we have people who believe a lot of like, scary things, dangerous things. It's not just, you know, those, uh, like somebody just believing in a horoscope or, you know, using a Ouija board, we've seen people believe in conspiracies and it's like taking a toll on family. So this book is just so phenomenal. I'm so grateful that he sent me an early copy, but, but yeah, uh, I, I asked him, you know, about his, his interviews, uh, the different, um, you know, research, that he did for this book. There's a lot of really interesting people and interesting stories in this. And yeah, David actually dives into, I don't know if you all remember, David's going to break it down in this conversation, but, but that, that, that dress, remember that dress that went viral and everybody saw it in different colors and stuff like that. But there's a really interesting lesson from there about how we perceive things. But yeah, David and I talk about so many different things. And he's such a cool, compassionate guy who who helps me empathize better when I want to like attack somebody and get into an argument with them because they believe some weird stuff. So anyways, super grateful David uh, took the time to come on. He's a very, very busy guy. So yeah, head down in the description. Make sure you're following David over on social media and check out his podcast. I've linked those down below. But most importantly, grab a copy of his brand new book, How Minds Change. If you're listening to it, uh, this episode, the day it comes out, make sure you pre-order it. It comes out June 21st. All right. That's linked down in the description below. Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with David McRaney about his new book, How Minds Change. all right hello david thanks so much for joining me how you doing today
1: i'm good i'm happy i'm making podcasts just like you uh i'm and i'm really happy to be here this is uh another one of uh too many honors at once makes you wonder uh if you have anything worthwhile to say, or you have everything worthwhile to say. So, uh, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to be here to talk about this book project.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we've been chatting for a while, so I'm super glad that we're finally able to connect, um, Mm -hmm. for, for just real quick, I'm sure many people in my audience are familiar with you and your work, but for those who might not know you, can you give us a little bit of your background before we dive into your awesome upcoming book?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, I have been a science journalist for a while now, but uh, I started out doing all sorts of other stuff like anybody else. I, um, But when I went to school for psychology, I switched over to journalism somewhere in there and uh, was working in um, TV media, doing all sorts of stuff and started a blog back then called You Are Not So Smart. And that blog is a celebration of self-delusion it's all. it really started with the introspection illusion as sort of its fundamental like viewpoint uh, that that it's not so much that we're biased and we uh, come up with all these false narratives and all these things. it's um it's that we don't know that we do that or we're very confident that we don't do that. and that leads to all sorts of down uh, downstream effects. And so uh, that was out for a while. It became um popular at that point of time when when books when blogs were becoming books, this is the in the Almost pre social media era. This is around mm. 2009. And um, I've been doing that for a while. Then uh, You're Not So Smart, the book came out. It did very well. And then the next, I did a sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. And then I've been really focused on the uh, podcast after that. I started the podcast, You Are Not So Smart. We're up to about 233 episodes by the mm. time of this recording. And it continues to explore the human condition through mostly psychology, but also any of the other ologies, uh, and some stuff that's not ologies, uh, that are, that to try to explore how we tend to delude ourselves. And the, uh, this project, uh, that we're talking about has been happening while I've been doing that for about five and a half years. Uh, so that's the, that's the short version of what I do and who I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those who haven't checked it out, uh, love your podcast. They need to check it out because, uh, yeah, you, uh, you introduced me with one of your guests, uh, uh, to this book on being certain. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that book so much. I was like, this is amazing because like you, I'm, I'm really fascinated with just like self-deception and all these other things. Right. And, and yeah, so like with, with this book, it's a little bit different than mm-hmm. the past ones, right? Because it's like really quick, like bite sized like, hey, mm-hmm. here's here's what's wrong with our thinking. Here's how to fix it. Here's some examples. But this this is more of a, you know, traditional book where you like cover mm-hmm. these different topics and stories and everything like that. So
1: what it's very what, on the ground?
0: Yeah. 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 What made you want to write this one? What kind of inspired it?
1: Well, I, I've always wanted to write in this style. This is the style that I started with when I was mm. print ju- when I was a print journalist, and uh, I always adored and looked up to a, to the uh, literary journalists, the um, the the people who like the cool, uh, electric coolate acid test, and uh, um, people like John Jeremiah Johnson, the the, the pe- people who uh, who wrote in a literary style, but they the characters are real people they met, and they they. I always enjoyed uh, uh, books that explored an idea in sort of the documentary style where, you know, some, some documentaries and some books, the, the author or the presenter has, uh, they're the expert or, or they present themselves as the expert. Mm. Or they start up the book saying, I, here's a, here's a a term I came up with and here's a book about this term. Yeah. Um, and they just had this voice of authority in the beginning. I, legitimately after doing you were not so smart and being in this space for so long, had a question burning inside of me that I wanted an answer to. And even though I kept inviting guests on the show, I just kept feeling like I wasn't getting the answer I wanted. And so I wrote a, bu- this book comes from that angle of, I start not having the answers and you go with me as I slowly mm-hmm. figure it all out or get the answers from the experts or get surprised by things. And I wanted to write it as an on the ground book. So instead of being. Wikipedia with jokes basically, or, or a bunch of, uh, I just tell you all these research papers I read, but I translate them into something that's quirky and and easy to read and that's fine. I I love books like that. I love, uh, podcasts like that. I love, um, uh, blogs like that or whatever you would call a blog these days. Um, I just wanted something different. I wanted to actually go to places like Westboro Baptist Mm. church. I wanted to go visit people who had left cults. I wanted to spend time with, I wanted to go to where the scientists do their work and talk to them in person, that sort of thing. Um, the, the way this book started was I had been, I had reached that point in my career where I was getting invited to do lectures and mm-hmm. I would in the Q and A in lectures, since I'd mostly talk about biases, fallacies, and heuristics, uh, it had at that time. Uh, this, this is the inciting moment. I remember that, uh, I had somebody in a Q and a ask, my dad thinks that Barack Obama is a, was born in, was not born mm-hmm. in the United States. And then some other people in the audience were like, yeah, well, my dad thinks he's, you know, a reptile, you know, they, you know, it's like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the question just sort of coming in the audience, how do we change their mind? And I remember, and I'm still very ashamed of this. Uh, but it wasn't at the time I was one of those kinds of, uh, of there were so many books, you know, at that time about flawed and irrational human reasoning. Mm. I just told them you couldn't. I said, "Don't, don't even yeah. try." And uh, it just bothered me. It, uh, for some reason, I remember leaving that lecture. I remember uh, going around about him making episodes and things after that, and thinking, "I don't know if I actually believe what I said," and I think maybe I shouldn't have, and I should look into that. I'm not. Uh, and and then at the same time in the United States, uh, it, what seemed like if you weren't involved in the activism. It seemed like same sex marriage norms and uh, public attitude shifted just overnight. It felt like, it felt like that. What really, it really happened over the course of about 12 years, Mm -hmm. really happened over the course of like, you know, a hundred years, but the pointed activism where you can chart it on a graph and it just goes, and and we went from 68% against to 68% in favor of same sex marriage, uh, somewhere around 2012. And when I saw that, I. Being someone who thinks a lot about psychology, who thinks about what's going on in brains, I just wanted to know like, what happened in everybody's brains? Yeah. Because I had this concept, this sort of uh, thought experiment of you could take someone from 10 years ago, uh, you could take someone from right now and put them in a time machine and put them back 10 years ago. And they would argue with themselves about this one particular issue. So something happened in there Yeah, and I wanted to understand it. And that became this whole thing. Cause I felt like on the other end of it, it would be, you know, you really, you can change people's minds. And uh, along the way, I learned so many things. I changed my mind about a lot of things along the way as, as myself. And that's how the book started. That's how it became the whole mission. And that's, re- that's how that was the jumping in point of this project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your book, it, you you kind of start out with how you're like, how you were like kind of pessimistic about people being able to change their minds. And that's where mm-hmm. I was like, yes. And that's one of the things I want to talk with you about, because here's here's my dilemma, David. So okay. I am a recovering drug addict. All right. Like for okay. about 10 almost 10 years, just drugs and alcohol couldn't stop. I was, you know, insanely irrational, right? But something happened, something switched. I changed my beliefs, like I changed the belief that drugs and alcohol were the solution to my problems. I changed my beliefs that the world was just out to get me. I changed the beliefs that, uh, you know, I used to believe that I couldn't change all these different things. So my mind changed, right? Mm -hmm. I eventually went to work in drug and alcohol treatment. I saw other people, their minds changed. It went through that same type of deal. So like on one hand, I have this like very personal experience of like, you know, this actually saved my life, right? Mm. But then when I look out at the world and I see so much irrationality, when I see people just digging in their heels, yeah, like I can't help but get pessimistic. So, like on one end, I know it's possible, kind of like what you're talking about, like hey, we saw like gay marriage, like that kind of like switch, so it's possible. But on the other hand, we see, you know, I think this last two years has been uh, just really eye-opening. How many people died because of what they believed about COVID? the vaccines yeah. and everything like that. So, so yeah, where, where do you find that optimism? Is it through your research? Is it through these conversations? <laughs> like how do we get that optimism? Cause I just want to give up sometimes. Like I'm not even going to try it. to change minds. No, you understand. know what I mean? Uh,
1: first of all, I want to acknowledge what you did, what you went through. That's, uh, that's a tremendous achievement. And, mm-hmm. uh, I have people in my life who, uh, some have made it out of that and some have not. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I, I grew up in a region where a lot of people fell into the, the opioid yeah. epidemic was, was rampant where I grew up. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that, that that's, I'm, I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to say I'm proud of you, but I am so, that, that, <laughs> that, I, that's, that's impressive. Um, and it does speak to all of this it, it speaks to the fact that, um, already, but at this point in the conversation, both of our minds have changed in some ways, right. Mm. Um, some of this comes down to. The, the phrase itself, change your mind is difficult to parse, difficult to define. Some cultures don't even use this phrase. Like it doesn't even translate in some languages. Mm. Um, and you can, if you want to say change my, your own mind versus change someone else's mind, you're starting to separate this into something, you know, persuasions on one side of this discussion and then like personal changes on another, but they do have foundational, psychological, neurological, uh, aspects to them, the. The reason I'm optimistic is I think, I'm, I think I am an optimist. I think I'm not, I'm almost Pollyanna. Sometimes I think we're going to be okay as a species. Uh, that isn't to say that a whole lot of people are in very bad situations right now, and there's a lot of struggle out there and there are a lot of fights to be fought. Um, but that being said, I feel like we are on the course to, and we're eventually going to have spaceships and explore the galaxy. And we're going to be, we're going to figure this out. Uh Uh, we figured everything out so far. Um, I'm kind of that Carl Sagan camp of like, I'm an optimist, but also aware that there are nuclear weapons. So like I'm yeah. in that space, like you can't just be blindly optimistic. You have to also do something with that and, and encourage people to work on things. And this book, that's part of the, the message in it, the, I think that we all are, I totally get it though. We are living through the greatest sociological shift when it comes to information exchange in the history of our species, like this is like the printing press doesn't even compare to this really, like Mm -hmm. it does compare, but it's, but the magnitude is enormous. The, if you read a lot of Marshall McLuhan stuff, you can tell, you can kind of get a sense of where we are in all this. Like we're in that, one of those shifts from one information paradigm to the next. The, uh, information landscape has changed a great deal. Things to, first of all, we've got, you know, coming out of the printing press and into, uh, mass communication and then cable and then BCRs and DVDs and uh, the internet and then social media and smartphones, like that's a lot of stuff all at once. Yeah. And what happened is that it brought a lot of people who weren't part of a conversation into a conversation with one another. A lot of information gatekeepers had to step aside. A lot of, uh, sources who were the only sources became just one of many sources. And that introduced a, a atmosphere where you have to modulate your trust a whole lot. Who do I trust? Why do I trust them? That sort of thing all becomes into play. And as a result of it, uh, you've got this, this really quick sequence of strangeness, whether it's, whether you're, you think about starting with Brexit and, and and Trump and, and COVID and, uh, civil unrest and, uh, a, a reemergence of a lot of conspiratorial viewpoints that seem to fringe that are going mainstream. Uh-huh. That's all happening. And it's all part of this, uh, absolute change to our information ecosystem that we're experiencing. Uh, and I know Kate Starbird who re- researches this, she's, she, she sort of, um, puts it like, uh, she, like it's, it's, it's similar to like after a hurricane comes through, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced a, a natural disaster. I've had, I, I've lived through a hurricane and had a tornado, I lived through a tornado once too. And oh, wow. after, after that, um, you go into this place where the, you're waiting for the electricity to come on. You've got first responders going around and you don't know what's up. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know where to get your supplies and you don't know who's hurt and you're really working on everything. And some people need things to be rebuilt and you start you enter this information ecosystem where rumors become valuable again. And you sort to you start sorting things by like how likely things are true. Like someone comes to and says, I hear that so-and-so's got this and you should go here to get that. And you start asking yourself, well, where did you hear that? And, yeah, And or if that person is like, this person is a firefighter, they tell you this, you are less likely to go, where'd you hear that? You know, you enter into a different place where trust is how you modulate and, and titrate in, in, in what you're going to believe or not believe and how much confidence you're going to put in things. And in a sense, like we're in a very high anxiety, complex information. Ecosystem now, where because we have access to so many sources, and there are so many things that are encouraging us to feel anxious, um, we are modulating as if we're in a natural disaster state of mind, where we are really worried about trust. Yeah. And trust comes different. Every different segments of our society have different motivations for trusting different sources in different ways. And and since you can click off of CNN directly to uh, you know flaming uh, eagle. Uh, dot com or whatever it is, uh, or you can, you know, you can click from Facebook to a news source, to, uh, a YouTube channel, everything just feels very smeared out and it's up to the individual to, to determine what they trust and that often comes from all sorts of things. So I think if, if you're not anxious and weirded out, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I trust you for the, to be in my zombie apocalypse survival squad, Yeah. so. I get it, but I'm very optimistic because I feel like we're in the, we're just the in-betweeners We're people that get to live through that transitional phase of things and it'll sort itself out. We, two things have to happen. A million things have to happen, but two big things have to happen. One is we all have to get better at, uh, sophistry and rhetoric and critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, each individual is going to have to, uh, onboard themselves into being good consumers of information, parsing misinformation. And the context in which we inter- interact with one another, uh, where we argue and debate and deliberate and where we get our news from all those things on that end of things, that's going to have to adapt to this as well. And those two things will take time. It could take, it could take a generation. It could take two or three, but I think it will sort itself out. I'm optimistic in that regard. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is this whole book is about how great we are at, uh, adapting to new information environments, adapting to being, to learning that we may be wrong about something. Adapting to uh, experiences that that call into question our our beliefs and attitudes and values. So I know it's a long answer, but I'll return to the first part of it, which is, uh, that phrase, change your mind. Like that's the part that I feel like, um, to start a conversation like this, it's really important that that comes up first, because if you're going to either try to change your own mind or change somebody else's mind, uh, try to get a grip, uh, try to get, um, get a grip one thing, but also try to get, uh, your mind around what is that what does it mean like what is changing when we say that a mind changes in the it's obviously a very abstract sort of conceptual thing, but in the book, I try to boil it down to three things uh, three mental constructs uh beliefs, attitudes, and values mm-hmm. and we can get into that deeper if you like, but I think that that's uh it's important to start up front like what is it that you're trying to change in another person's yeah. mind or yourself? The reason I ask people to do that is because it can feel like when you're trying to change someone's mind, you can feel like you're trying to change what they believe when really what, what you're probably trying to change is something more along the line of their, their, their attitude towards something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's a different thing. A belief is a, 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 an estimation of whether or not something is, or is it true? It's sort of a, a feeling of uh, certainty that is that uh, goes one way or the other, mm-hmm. but information that's encoded in the brain. Whereas an attitude is a, a positive or negative evaluation of, of those things. And a value is where you put something in the hierarchy of where you should put your, uh, your resources and your energy, but what, what, what should be the, the issue that where you put most of your, uh, focus on. And when you're trying to change someone's mind, it usually seems to be, you're trying to change one of those dynamics and all of them interplay with one another. But if you try to use a technique that that works best on one, it might not work well on the other, it might actually be counterproductive in other, in other regards. So that's usually where I start out with talking about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. And uh, yeah, as far as like uh, by the time I finished your book, my my pessimism went a little bit more optimistic because you have so many (laughs) stories. Like when you talk with, you know, the people who left like the Westboro Baptist Church or the people who did like the canvassing for like LGBT rights, you know, and all these other things. Like I'm like, okay, okay, this is giving me a little bit of hope. But I do. Before we circle back to values, I do want to touch on like the critical thinking aspect. Right. Because first off everybody thinks they're a critical thinker. And, and I think you've probably realized this, like since you started blogging about this, like nobody just like looks in the mirror and is like, I'm a highly irrational human being, right? Like even when I was in like full-blown a- addiction, acting like a lunatic, like selling things to buy drugs, I felt I was acting rational. Like no sure. part of me was like, hey, this is this is kind of crazy. But anyways, so when it comes to this stuff, uh, as I've mentioned, you've you've seen me discuss this. I have, uh, started reading your, uh, you're not so smart with my 13 year old son, oh, right? Yeah, because I like you were saying, like, we're going through this weird, uh, you know, generation, we've been like a witness to this. And when my pessimism kicks in, I'm like, I can't do anything about the people who are like solidified in their beliefs, but at least, at least I could teach my son about some of these these things, right? These kind of like thinking errors and fallacies and biases and all these other things. Right. Um, but anyways, what I'm getting at is like a couple things. One, like I'm teaching him about these things. Right. But the other, which I think you kind of touched on is like when we're talking about changing minds, I'm trying to teach my son about the importance of intellectual humility. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I started reading your book with him is because he is just killing it in school, right? Like this week, since the school year is ending, he's getting like an award, like an academic award for like straight A's. And like, it's crazy. Like he's so smart and like driven and just does a schoolwork and all this other stuff. But I never want him to just be like, I know everything because it feels like, that's why I love that book on, you know, on being certain. Mm. It feels like a lot of people get very certain in their beliefs. So anyways, Mm -hmm. so teaching him about thinking errors and also the importance of intellectual humility. Like, do you think like Those are like, if people are listening and saying, Hey, you know what, David, I kind of want to change a little bit, like, where (laughs) are those? Is there anything I'm missing? Like, like what other things will help just us as individuals change our minds to kind
1: of be mindful
0: of, you know what I mean?
1: Sure. Well, there's a little thought experiment you can do. Uh, my, my good friend will store, uh, gave me this thought experiment, um, do you think that as dear listener or viewer of this person who is, is taking part in this conversation with us, um, ask yourself right now, uh, have you, is there anything, uh, well, let me phrase it like this. Do you think you're right about everything? And if the answer is no, uh, what is it that you're wrong about? Mm. And if you say you don't know, then ask yourself, why don't you know? And how would you go about figuring it out? I feel like that's, that's, that's intellectual humility in a nutshell, right? Uh, you, there's no way anyone's going to, if you do think you're right about everything, then you should like uh, stop what you're doing right now and call the president. Yeah. Uh, you could be a very useful person in our struggle these days. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, you also are unaware of what you're unaware of. And um, the things you're wrong about You can't possibly know that because if you did, you'd stop being wrong about it. Then you'd be right about it. Mm -hmm. And being wrong feels a lot like being right. Uh, so to, to paraphrase Catherine Schultz, so that's one thing that's cog, that's, uh, that's intellectual humility. It's absolutely necessary. The whole reason we have science, the whole reason we invented science was to dig ourselves out of the hole of stupid that comes along with, (laughs) um, having assumptions about how the world works and then getting, falling in love with those assumptions and then because it's so easy to pick and choose and cherry pick information to justify and, um, rationalize just about anything that you've ever thought, felt, or believed. And then on the other side of that is, is, which is an integral part of this book is you need to not just have intellectual humility, you need to have cognitive empathy. That is also recognize that's happening to the other person you're having a conversation with, even if mm-hmm. they're a friend We're all in this together in that way. Right. There's a real, uh, unity and this humility. And I'm a big advocate of that. Um, that is for me, the best way to get into it, uh, as far as like, um, trying to now, how do you instill this in people? Like, 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 like if you are an advocate for this and you're up against somebody who's not doing this, then I've got all sorts of stuff we can talk about. But as far as like you as an individual, uh, that's where I would start with that little thought experiments really powerful, I think.
0: Yeah, I, you know, like with that cognitive empathy, too, uh, and like just trying to take that perspective, like, um, for me, like a pivotal moment for me was reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. It just Mm. opened up my eyes to be like, oh, wait, like, like you're from down south, right? Mm -hmm, I I was born in uh, California. I've been living in Vegas for most of my life. Very liberal Areas, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, but when i when I read Jonathan Haidt's book and it kind of like sent me on this path to like learn more about this, it's like uh like you were talking about, like one of the things that you know when we're talking about changing minds it's like values and attitudes, you know, and I think you know when you're talking about certain stories in the book, like like when you're when you're describing the story of these kids who grow up in the Westboro Baptist Church, I think it feels like it's difficult for us to even imagine what that's like like if your entire universe right is that mm-hmm. is like these people with these beliefs the people in your household like if i just take one second and say who would i be today if that's the household i grew up in mm-hmm. right who would i be today if everybody i hung out with believed those things mm-hmm. you know um and maybe i'm a little bit more empathetic because here in las vegas there are a ton of mormons and i grew up around like my best friend is Mormon very Mormon family like he's kind of like ex-mormon but anyways so I kind of saw that I see what happens when you grow up in that type of household right but but yeah like um how how like throughout the book or has it been like even longer than just researching the book like how has having conversations with people helped you have that kind of cognitive empathy and see like oh maybe this is why you believe what you believe because even when we're talking about COVID conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. there are people who have developed a distrust of the government for very rational reasons. And now it seems to have slipped into all these other things, you know, but it feels like we're not even having those conversations or trying to take that perspective. So how has it helped you just having conversations with people?
1: Well, I mean, the, uh, by the end of the book, I, I talk about how you need to, the, if you were to take the steps of persuasion that that are in the later parts of the book, like I add a step, which is like, um, ask yourself why you want to change that person's mind. That's a, mm. that's an interesting question to ask yourself before you get into an argument with someone, um, the answers could go all over the place, but the, if you haven't asked that question yourself, I bet you get something strange out of it. Yeah. All the persuasion techniques in the book, whether it's self-persuasion or it's a, a guided metacognition and all this other stuff we talked about, they all really boil down to that idea of thinking about thinking and, and it's something we don't, we rarely do this, this sort of really intense introspection. Where um, like, for, for example, like if you have a strong opinion about climate change, um, it may feel like, and most of us feel this way, uh, well, no matter what it is, the issue you're talking about, it could be vaccines. It could be uh, um, the moon landing or whatever it might be. You have a strong, you, you have a strong opinion about this. You have a belief about it. It feels a, a lot like you have carefully considered all the evidence. And you have done some sort of like Gandalf thing where you've gone down into the bowels of a castle, into the library yeah. and you've read all the tomes and the, in the scrolls. And by candlelight, you lifted a finger and said, aha, here's how I feel about blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Right. And when you get into an argument, whether it was with a, a family member or a stranger or somebody on the internet, um, it really feels like that's the position you're arguing from the facts were on your side and you're, you've reasonably worked it all out. But if you'll say you're arguing climate change, what's probably going to happen is you're going to start pulling data from sources that you trust, and you're going to start dumping a bunch of links on people. And you might even be so uh, clever that you're doing it in bullet points with hyperlinks. And uh, it's going to be this sort of battle of facts, uh, these battle Mm -hmm. of things. And it feels like that. It feels like it's a battle of facts. It's a battle of beliefs. It's a battle of, of reasonable positions that you have conjured over time. But I would, um, if either one, uh, if yeah, I would imagine most people that, that are hearing this, uh, are not climate scientists, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, have you gone to Antarctica and done a core sample? Do you, have you read all the relevant literature? Do you have a PhD? Mm-hmm. Um, have you almost, uh. Uh, lost a finger to frostbite as you were writing in your journal about all the research that you had conducted. I doubt this very seriously. So the fact that you might be right on this issue is probably, uh, there's a little bit of luck involved in here that you're hanging out with the right crowd and it's because of who you trust. And th- what's actually happening in those debates, those arguments is it's sort of a battle of, I trust these sources and you should too. And the other part you wish you, I, I wish you would trust those sources what, and but it's never being discussed. It just becomes a battle of conclusions. Mm-hmm. What's not going, ha- what's not happening in this space is a conversation. And, um, let me take a tangent here to explain what I'm talking about. The, it involves the, it. Dre- it the dress, uh, the thing, to me, <laughs> this is the best way to explain this or to, or to, or to, or to, put the, to articulate this is a way that I think everybody can connect to, so we don't get into a bunch of, uh, you know, scientific, you know, terminology that, that has to be explained 10,000 mm-hmm. different ways uh, the dress. Okay. Like there's, um, I haven't have met, I have yet to meet someone who doesn't remember the dress. I'm sure there are some people who haven't, but so for that very small percentage of people, if you don't remember somewhere around 2015, this picture of a dress hit the internet and some people, when they look at this picture, it looks like it's black and blue. And some people when they look at this picture. It looks like it's white and gold. Uh, and it just looks that way. It just happens. That's just how you experience it. And you can't, you don't choose it. Uh, you, there's no other way you, Do you see it. It just is, that's the way it looks to you. And if you never met another person and you, who, after seeing this and discussed it, you might just go through life, assuming that's what the dress, that's what the color of the dress is. But when you meet another person who has seen it, uh, they see a different color. It's, it becomes this real bizarre existential moment. You're like, what mm-hmm. were you talking about? Like. And a lot of times on the internet during in this period of time when it became popular, uh, the reaction was, why are some people stupid? Why are some people crazy? What's wrong yeah. with people? Cause you can't help, but see it the way you see it. So if somebody, somebody does see it differently, the, the first, like, sort of the knee jerk reaction to it is like, what's, what's going on with you? Um, and when this first came out, it was, it was, it was a huge moment on the internet. It was, it, was, uh, it presaged all of the COVID stuff that was about to happen. It presaged all of the. Uh, alternative facts, uh, weirdness, conspiratorial, the way we argue was sort of like predicted by this thing, because that's how people argued about it. Um, and the Washington post even had this article that said that it was the, it was the argument that broke the internet. You know, we were so naive back then, Uh, (laughs) but sweet, what sweet summer children. We were to think that that was the argument that broke the internet and it, but it really did in some ways, um, Twitter wouldn't load on people's phones because it was the most trending thing that ever happened. And um, it was getting like multiple millions of views an hour on websites like wired.com and stuff. It really was an argument that we could not stop to argue about. And I remember it even ended up on like local news. Like it would be on, at the end of local news broadcasts all over the world in other countries, you know, like people, they would just like, and here's something people are talking about, what do you see here? And then they would argue, like (laughs) the reporters, you can go to YouTube and watch these are crazy. The, The reporters would start arguing about it. And they'd have those things like, what do you mean? It's black or blue or whatever they say. Uh, celebrities chimed in on it. It was a whole thing. I um, became super fascinated with the way we were arguing with this, about this. And I thought it would be a good way in the book to sort of illustrate some of the points that I was talking about earlier. And I was lucky enough to get in touch with the uh, researchers who were researching why we saw the dress differently, because not only were we out here in a... Uh, layperson land freaking out about this people who study color vision were freaking out about it um it it, it was a very rare instance of something called a a, a bistable intrapersonal uh illusion mm-hmm. uh it, if people are familiar probably with like the duck rabbit and uh, uh-huh. the um the vase that looks like two people looking at each other in silhouette or a vase those images are are, are also bistable illusions but they're different they're uh, cross personal bistable illusions meaning that One brain looking at that image, will look at it and see it as one thing and then see it as the other thing and back and forth and every brain looks, sees it in those two different ways. What's happening there is something called disambiguation. It's an ambiguous image and the brain disambiguates it into one of two possible, uh, conclusions. And every brain seems to disambiguate it into one of those two things. This was different in that it was the same things happening. It's an ambiguous image, but some brains disambiguated into this color and other brains disambiguated into this color. So that means there's some reason why different brains would disambiguate differently. And these wonderful researchers, Michael Karlovich and um, Pascal Wallace, they did the research into it. The whole story is in the book, but the to give away the ending of the story, after doing this huge research, for like 13,000 different people, what they figured out was, the reason people saw that differently was because this is an image that was taken with a sort of a bad fawn and in weird light and on a dreary day, and it's overexposed. And when the brain receives you know, information through the eyeballs and it's overexposed, without our knowledge, this is happening at all times. This happened to us like 10,000 times just today. We turn down the overexposure. In, in neuroscience, they call it uh, subtracting the luminate, the illuminate. And the brain just makes an assumption based off all the experiences you've had so far as to what, what color is the luminant, so that it can subtract it. So it can mm-hmm. turn down the overexposure. People who had spent more time outside in sunlight, or they spend more time around windows when they work, or they're sort of like morning people, uh, sunlight is blue, the, the, the sky's blue. There's a lot of blue in that light and natural light. And so they, they assumed it's overexposed. It's overexposed in blue, turn down the blue. They see this, uh, white and gold image. People who spend more time, uh, out indoors or they work at night or they're more night people, they assume that it's a uh, overexposed and artificial light, which is more yellow. They take the yellow out, they see black and blue. So the choices you've made in life, the experiences you've had in life, these create your visual priors as they put it, and. That means that when you're in a state of uncertainty and ambiguity, you turn that into certainty and you disambiguate the ambiguity based off of these priors. And you end up with a completely different subjective experience of reality than other people who are disambiguating based off of their different life experiences and exposures before that moment. So what you end up with is two versions of the truth, but what I would what want people to see about this is what if those two versions of the truth met each other and argued or even worse debated mm-hmm. because what happens there is somebody who needs to be wins needs to win and somebody needs to lose and in a debate over whether or not it's one color or the other no one is going to get to the actual truth by winning that argument they're actually going to get farther away from the truth because the real question should be why do we see it differently yeah. what is the nature of our disagreement here and if you're not curious about that, when you have an engagement of somebody who disagrees with you, then you will necessarily through the act of debating them and getting upset with them and arguing with them and trying to win, and they're doing the same thing, get farther away from an opportunity to actually understand whichever metaphor you want to use, the higher truth or the deeper truth. But the idea is the, both of you are wrong and both of you are right in this very strange way. What you're not going to figure out is that it's possible to see it differently because of all this stuff these scientists figured out and yeah. that is why that's a great example there's a there's a term for this that they use called surf pad which i love that phrase yeah it means uh substantial uh sub- substantial uncertainty under ramified or fork priors will create disagreements um and ramified just means branching and what that basically you can just imagine it like there's a line and you have all the life experiences of one person all the life experiences of another person and then crossing that line is two different conclusions. And if you, what we tend to do is argue with each other on one side of that line and never investigate what's on the other side of the line. Mm. And almost everything that I talk about the book, all the different techniques, all the different activist groups, even instances where people leave cults or leave different organizations or leave conspiratorial communities, the route they took out of that was to get on the other side of that line.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, uh that was actually one of my favorite chapters in the book. And 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 here's here's kind of why. Like I've uh, you know, it's also part of my, you know, sobriety story. I I found that, you know, there there's like a lesson from just everything, right? No matter what it is, I always try to pull a so. lesson from it, right? <laughs> yeah, and like something as silly or quote unquote silly as like this dress debate, like there's something deeper there, right? Like we are Mm -hmm. having different perceptions of reality. And it's funny because early on in, uh, you know, you're not so smart, you talk about uh, our visual blind spot. And I had my son mm-hmm. do the thumb thing, right? Oh, I love that. And just like kind of explain to him like our brains do so weird things and our brains fill in gaps. Our brains uh alter our perception of reality. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. you know, the lesson there is like, hey, can I just stop for a second? And just be like, hey, why <laughs> do you believe this? Why what is happening? Or is am I seeing something wrong? You know, mm-hmm. so I I I try to teach him and I'm constantly trying to say, okay, I need to be challenged on this because. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm viewing this incorrectly, but like you said, sometimes you're both right, you're both wrong, and all this other stuff. But you know, I, I really want to ask you, this kind of dips into uh morality and ethics, all right. Okay. So so <laughs> uh and this is something I, I'm I'm regularly wondering about, and it's it's about I'll put it this way. So you reference like the work of like Hugo Mercier in your book, right? Mm, I love yes. his most, uh, his newer book, Not Born Yesterday. I reread it not too long ago. He's incredible. And, and I really got into this idea of like trust. Why do we trust who we trust? Why do we believe mm-hmm. things, right? All these different things, really interesting to me. But anyways, part of it, as you probably know, is like uh, we tend to trust people due to their authority or like mm-hmm. the halo effect really skews our thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. for example, Elon Musk, richest guy on the uh, the planet, therefore he knows how to run Twitter. Like, wait, what? Or Bill Gates started, you know, uh, Microsoft, therefore he should tell me about vaccines and everything. It's really weird, right? So anyways, here's here's kind of the ethical question of it. With the rise of social media, because there's a lot of uh, debates around like people like Joe Rogan, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson, just all sorts of big names this responsibility that comes in, right? Because Mm -hmm. just using Joe Rogan as an example, he's like, I am just a guy. I am just a comedian, that's Mm -hmm. it, right? I just like to have conversations or whatever. But since we know, since we have evidence that people tend to value that information more from people with higher authority, right? Mm -hmm. Or even Mm -hmm. referencing Will Storr, people who are winning the status game. Like, Mm -hmm. do you think that there's a certain point or even yourself, well-known author, is there a certain responsibility to inform yourself more or watch what you say because people are prone to believe more of what you say due to your status and authority?
1: Yes,. <laughs> yes yes. you have you have a platform. You're not just some guy. You have six point eight million listeners. yeah. like yeah, you have a responsibility. I mean, that's I mean this is my personal opinion on the matter. This is something that we could debate this, and this is uh, we can get into all sorts of philosophical spin-offs. But personally, David mcraney says, yes, you have a responsibility. Mm. I have a responsibility like uh the the person with the platform has has responsibility you you earned it uh for whatever reason I mean here's how here's how most people are it just to to like draw a nice metaphor like like when I mean we're trying to modulate our trust like the way uh Confirmation bias comes up a lot in all this, and Hugo Mercier mm-hmm. is one of those people that deeply affected me by helping me understand that confirmation bias was a feature, not a bug. Um, you know, his book, The Enigma of Reason, was humongous in the in the uh, research, uh, and I asked him a million questions when I finally was got an opportunity, and he just was he really shook me up and got me out of thinking of brains as being flawed and irrational, or reasoning being flawed and yeah. irrational. Um, and because he has something called the interactionist model, we can talk about it if you like, but that's a Basically it comes down to, we evolved the ability to argue and Mm -hmm. arguing involves. We have two systems, one for producing propositions and one for evaluating propositions and on the internet, people tend to produce a lot of propositions at the same time, and it feels like we're in a group talking to each other, but we're Mm -hmm. not actually doing that. We're not, we're not, it's not like we're sitting in a room and and trying to figure out where to go eat or, or whether or not, or rid of, uh, some government facility, deciding whether or not we're going to start a war. Like we're not having that kind of discussion. It's yeah. more like we're all sitting in a room and writing, uh, our, our hot takes on pieces of paper and then throwing them on a big pile, uh, which is different. Um, so what it, this question of responsibility for platforms, one of the things that we do as human beings is, um, you can imagine it like you're camping and, uh, you hear a weird sound in the, in the woods and you think it could be a bear. And so you have a visceral bodily reaction to this. You're it it's in the realm of attitudes. It's in the realm of emotions. You have a negative affect go all over you. You feel it in your, in your body. You feel it in your blood and, uh, you feel it in your, uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and your behavior starts to, to take uh, root in all of this. And so you have this anxiety mm-hmm. and what you want to do is, uh, confirm that your anxiety is justified. So you take out a flashlight and you go looking around the woods for information that would confirm that your anxiety is justified. And if it's, if there's no bear, uh, you won't find it and you'll be like, yeah, but your behavior is, is driven by this sort of desire to, uh, confirm that your anxiety is justified. Um, and you may find a false positive, false negative, who knows? You might find a bear if. So that's just something we do the, and, and the only, the, but the thing is on the internet, if you have an anxiety, mm. and that anxiety can come from all sorts of things. Something could have happened like nine 11 for a lot of people created a new anxiety, uh, COVID created a new anxiety, or some people are prejudiced and they would get their anxious over all sorts of, uh, groups they find, uh, uh scary to them for somewhat, for whatever reason. Uh, or their identity is under threat because of something that's happening in, in the culture, they get this anxiety and they go looking for confirmation that their anxiety is justified, yeah. that it's reasonable. And when you go on the internet to doing that, one thing happens, which is you will find evidence that your anxiety is justified. There's you're just, we just, you're just going to find it. And then we have a, if we were, if we were able to bring that, if we were there, the three of us with flashlights doing it, it would be different than it's just us doing it alone. But the other thing we want to do is the thing that is driving that behavior is why would it need to be justified? Because what we're trying to do is prepare for some sort of reputation management scenario Mm -hmm. where we're going to present our argument to other people and demonstrate to them that you have, that they should be upset too, and possibly debate it on the internet. What's going to happen is you're going to find other people who share your anxiety, Mm -hmm. Who've done the same search you've done, found the same things, and they're somewhere talking to each other. Yeah. And, and you will find your way into that community. And now all these other, all these motivations that got you into the community take a back seat to the motivation to be a good member of a community. Yeah. Now all the tribal stuff comes in and you will be deeply motivated to just be a good member of the group that you found that shares your anxieties. Because what comes with sharing anxieties is also using each other as, as, uh, cues and tools for determining who to trust and who not to trust. And that's just something that people do. And if you decide to make a career of talking into a microphone about whatever it is, oftentimes sharing with other people, what your anxieties are and sources that you trust, and people glom onto that and become members of a community that you have created without really intending to create. Now you are, now you have a certain responsibility. It's, 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 you know, you're in a burning building, you didn't ask to be in a burning building with with a, with a child crying in the corner, but you now have a responsibility to save yeah. the child. You, yeah. I mean, there's an old philosophical thing about like, if you're holding a, a, tea, a teapot and you don't know that it's worth, that it's a priceless, it's the only teapot in existence of a certain kind and it's priceless. And, uh, if you drop that teapot without knowing it, that's one thing, but if you know it. If you know that it's priceless and it's valuable, then you now suddenly have, or have a new responsibility to to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't consider anyone like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or any of these people who, who sort of accidentally form these giant groups of people around them, Mm. I don't think they're dumb to the, they're they're You don't have to be a genius to realize that you, what you, what you say and what you contribute to the public discourse, uh, affects things and uh, that's a choice. Yeah. So,
0: OK, let let's let's stay on this for a second, because I'm a thousand percent <laughs> with you. Right. But yeah, I you know, one of my other fascinations is moral philosophy. I love reading about that stuff and just all the different tastes. But here's here's what I run into. Right. If I'm trying to think of the argument for the others from the other side, from someone who just loves Joe Rogan or even Joe Rogan himself or any of these other uh, these public intellectuals, if you will. Right. Um, even though Joe Rogan specifically doesn't say he's a public intellectual, but. Here's my question, right? Is it, is it reasonable to be like, okay, someone like Joe Rogan needs to read as many books as I have, study all these things, or he can no longer, he is not allowed to talk about this topic. You know what I mean? Because. yeah,
1: Well, I don't feel that way. No,
0: no. So how, I mean, how, where, where does that come in? Like, how does he get educated to realize that he shouldn't be as certain about something as he believes he is, you Yeah, know? it's
1: in his, it's in his thinking style, critical thinking style, his metacognition. that's where, that's where the, the work needs to be at. I have no problem with someone having a platform who isn't an expert. That's me, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like er, almost every journalist who's ever done anything worthwhile is someone who is eager to learn more about an issue and has adopted an epistemological sort of approach that is somewhere. Close to the scientific method where things are, you know, it's a hypothesis and we're going out, we're looking for the null hypothesis, get many different perspectives mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. That's the, that's, it's not, the ignorance doesn't bother me at all. Like we're all, even experts are ignorant on everything except the thing they're an expert on. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more in the, the epistemology at play. That's, that's what, I, that's what, I, it's the, it's how one derives certainty, how one tests their certainty, how one is open to, um, to testing whether or not the methods they're using to arrive at certainty are good methods that's the thing that i think is the responsibility that you have to put on like a like a that's the thing that you have to adopt once you have a gigantic platform
0: yeah no that 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 definitely makes sense it, it also it seems like something i've noticed as kind of a trend uh which is you know something that i've had to look at just looking at like you know just statistics and data is is this kind of idea that there's like this one outlier scientist right who knows <laughs> the truth you mm-hmm. know like all sure. the like there, there's like thousands of like people who have just studied something their whole life right you get this scientific consensus on climate change or do vaccines work or whatever and then there's like these one or two scientists and and like there's this idea that that okay, they're seeing something that nobody else does, and I I I cannot grasp why we would believe that. Like why <laughs> why would we believe like oh this one guy like especially in 2022 when so many people have access to data and information. Like it's not like you know back when there was like somebody in like America and someone in Europe and they'd have to like send a pigeon or send something on like you know a, a ship to get this information yeah. across. Like like why why do we believe that one Person has has figured something out that nobody else has, and somehow we can't test it, or or like uh, this idea that we're trying to suppress what they're saying, even though they're saying yeah, sure, it millions of people. Like, why well, why we, do we believe
1: that? Well, we we only believe that when the thing that they say just so happens to be the thing that we wish they'd <laughs> say. <laughs> Good point. Do you know what I mean? Like, if 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 that one person if, if that one person comes out, like if Doctor Oz or somebody comes out and says, like, uh, <laughs> hey, I just want everybody to know, it turns out Clorox bleach is probably the healthiest thing you could, you could drink in the morning. Like, like you should have one good shot of Clorox bleach in the morning. That reaction that you're talking about, don't think anybody would have that. They wouldn't be like, oh, I knew this one guy is going against the grain. Like nobody yeah. else is brave enough to say this This is something that <laughs> doctors don't want you to know Yeah, it, it's more likely that that person is saying something that's like, oh, finally, somebody is saying something that makes me feel like, and there's multiple motivations. One could be oh, it's mo- most of them are going to have to do with identity. Like oftentimes that person saying something that makes you feel like you're the groups to which you feel like you owe allegiance or that you mm. uh, have a lot of social costs or social rewards tied up with it does something they say, makes it seem more like you're in the right group. Uh, or, uh, it's something that if you were to, um, adopt and then talk about in your social circles, it would make you feel like you're the smart person in the group, or you're the, or the, you're the person in the group that has a uh, has is valuable because you have information everybody else wants can use. Like there's all these like personal identity things that will influence a person to go with that, but more often than not, what it's going to be is it allows that person to assimilate instead of accommodate. Yeah. Um, there's something I talk about a lot in the book. It's it's it's, um, for anyone who's never heard of these terms, uh, Jean Piaget introduced, uh, this is called a genetic epistemology. There's a whole world of this. Um, it's a. Assimilation and accommodation. Here's the, what's the easiest way to say this. Um, when a child sees a dog for the first time, uh, this is how I'll talk about it in the book. Um, you know, they, they categorize it. We think categorically oftentimes. So there'd be like, um, non-human furry walks on four legs, has a tail, uh, dog. That's how because these are, this is the inputs. These are sensory inputs they're receiving. These are things that go along with their app. their, their ab, sort of abstraction layers they have in their mind. Then that same child sees a horse and for the first time, and they point at it and say, dog, Mm. and it's because it's a non-human, it's got four legs, it's furry. it has got a tail. And when someone says to them, no, that's not a dog, that's a horse, that is a moment where they have to create a new category. So for these other two categories to live within, and so it's going to be something like animal. And that is an, that is an actual moment of expanding your mind. That is an actual moment where you had to create a new layer of abstraction to make sense of the world. And this is what Piaget called accommodation. You have to, uh, create a, you have to expand the, your, uh, abstraction layers to accommodate the new information. Before they did that, they were trying to assimilate. They're trying to take what this new thing that they had seen. And had experienced, and make it fit into their current understanding of the world into all the current models they have, which requires you not to create new models, not to create new categories, not to create new layers of understanding. And for the most part, that's less cognitively taxing and literally takes fewer calories, and it allows you to uh, to sort of err on the side of caution. the brain the brain is always worried about um either being dangerously um uh, being dangerously wrong or dangerously ignorant. Both of those can get you right. So you want to, uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to change your mind when you shouldn't, and you don't want to not change your mind when you should. And it's a tightrope thing. Yeah. So the safest bet is to assume, well, so far this is working out for me. I would like to assimilate what I'm, what I'm experiencing instead of accommodate to understand it in a new way yeah uh and because an accommodation is really changing your mind, but sometimes we avoid accommodation not just because we're trying to be cognitive misers, we avoid accommodation because it comes with a, with a threat of social cost, yeah like if I were to believe this person or if I were to uh um shift my attitude in this way, then there might be some sort of social sanction that comes along with it, yeah, or in the case of this Uh, one scientist who seems to be going against the grain, choosing to believe that person or adopting what they say also will give, will give you social rewards or somehow in some way avoid social costs. So there are many motivations behind why that might take place, but you'll notice that for the most part, (laughs) people don't do that with people who say things that will radically make it difficult for them to live their lives or would really threaten what they already believe about the world in a way. That would cause them uh, to have to sit down and think of really hard or read some more books about things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, that's something, um, you know, that really helped me understand all this was just uh, just the social cost of it. Right. I was I was reading a book. I can't remember. Was it was the the bias that divides us. It was something about political polarization. But anyways, hmm. it brought up the just what, what we were kind of talking about, like when we're saying people are irrational, right? Like, is it irrational? if you're agreeing with your group right like if you look at that from like an evolutionary like psychology standpoint Mm -hmm. like like no like the most rational thing to do is to go with your group and not disagree like for example again like growing up around mormons like i've seen people leave the church and you have like nobody right like your friends your family members they were all there so like like it's a lot easier to just be like okay i'll just you know, go with this. So that's another way that I try to empathize when I want to see people kind of believing these things, especially when someone like lonely falls into some weird, like QAnon conspiracy group or whatever, like they finally found people. So I'm often thinking like, how can we transition to them? So they still have social support or, you know, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And, you know, uh, I, I was glad, like there were some like Reddit groups of like ex QAnon members, mm-hmm. right, where they could sit and talk and socialize and stuff. But, but just a couple more questions for you, David. Yeah, yeah. One, one thing one thing, like uh, I'm sure a lot of my these are listeners- great
1: questions, by the way. Like, oh. like uh, you were asking before we got started. Like, I hope you're not tired of it. No one's asked any of these questions before, so nice. these are great, <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. So, so here's one. Hopefully, not too many yeah. people ask, but because here's what
0: I think the biggest challenge for a lot of us is, and I think that you've developed a, a technique for this, right? When you're talking with like a 9-11 truther or a flat mm-hmm. earther or someone who legit believes that there are lizard people, right? Mm-hmm. Just these like off the wall beliefs. And I've done this by the way. Yeah. So what, what is your best tip? Like, because I feel like we have two reactions. One of them is to get like, really angry like how are you this dumb naive gullible whatever and the other one is just like start laughing like this is the craziest thing i've ever heard like how do how how do we stop ourselves from having those reactions and having a conversation to try to understand why they believe Mm. that thing like i'm not talking about like uh something like oh do vaccines actually work or do you know like i'm talking like way yeah way out there how do the good news
1: is um Techniques the same no matter what. Um Ah. in the book, uh, I I one of the best things I got out of all this was, and this was not planned or expected, it was a huge surprise in the writing of of this. Um, I was able to meet all these different groups who uh wanted to develop a really to to solve the to answer the question you just asked, basically. Um deep canvassers were working on LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. Um going door to door, knocking on doors for people who deeply did not uh, agree with them on those issues. Uh, street epistemology groups were doing it with more fact-based things. So this would be yeah. more in the domain of what you're talking about. Um, uh, people with in smart politics were working more on um, polarized issues with their straight up political issues, more, more tribal signaling issues. Um, and then uh, there's a dozen more. There's a Therapeutic models like motivational interviewing, which mm-hmm. is, um, you were talking about addiction earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that technique. It, it's, it's the most effective technique when it comes to uh, helping someone who's trying to get out of uh, um, uh, alcoholism, addiction, and so on, and which is sort of a behavior change technique. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, um, my good friend, Misha Gloverman, who does conflict resolution and negotiation. So that's something more along what you would get in a sort of a, uh, um, at a, in a corporate landscape or even in a uh, even like a hostage negotiation or something yeah. like that uh, or dealing with a suspect if you're like in the FBI or something so all of these groups when i met them and when i was looking through their like literature and asking them what they had done and m- every one of these groups has had thousands of conversations ab tested so that they go in the direction of what works and away from what doesn't yeah and what i was shocked to find was that their steps pretty much overlap they're almost the same steps in the same order And you have to change it a little bit. If you're dealing with either a fact, if you're dealing with a belief and attitude or a value to say that you're dealing with something that either is or is not true, dealing with something that is uh, how someone feels about something positive or negative, or dealing with something that goes somewhere in where they think like the money should go, should it go to schools or aircraft carriers? Like these are all things that can be shifted in a conversation like this. Um, so. What I'm going to tell you will work for any domain. You just have to tweak it a little bit. But if you're talking about a very fact-based issue, like um, let's uh, say, let's talk about the reptilians, which uh, for, for, as far as conspiracy theorists go, this is, I love this conspiracy theory. It's one of those when I was sitting down listening to it, I was like, I had that like, mm, it's pretty good. Oh, it's pretty good. But like Like, <laughs> if you've never heard of the reptilian thing, here's the short version of it. There's more more time passed between the Stegosaurus and the Triceratops rex than the Triceratops rex and today. Dinosaurs were on Earth for a long time, yeah. so that means they had a long time to evolve, uh, longer than we've had to evolve since we've been protohumans. So, what if maybe the, the asteroid didn't actually come? That's all a cover up by dinosaurs who got so evolved they became sentient. They created a way for us to think that they were gone. They've been hiding in like underground and behind businesses and on the moon and stuff like that. And they've been running things ever since. And they're guiding our evolution like the obelisk in 2001. Hey, that's a great conspiracy theory. So so let's say you're dealing with someone who has something like that. It could be anything in that domain. Um, The number one thing, first of all, like I said before, ask yourself why you want to change that person's mind. And I think there are all sorts of reasonable reasons you might want to change somebody's mind about that. But first of all, ask yourself that question and really have a definite answer for yourself before you get started. What I want you not to do is say, I'm right. And you're wrong. Cause that's not a good reason to do this. There has to, there has to be some value in changing that person's mind. Yeah. The, once that's out of the way, the first step in all these techniques is build rapport, um, if you communicate something and it, it could be, it, and this can be totally unintentional on your part, but if you communicate something that can be interpreted by the other person or is interpreted by the other person as, you should be ashamed for thinking that you yeah. should, you. You should feel stupid. Like you should feel like there's a chance you would get ostracized if everybody learned what you think about this conversation's over. There's nothing more threatening to a social primate and we're a social primate, um, so you want to build rapport with that person. If this is a family member or someone that you've had arguments with in the past, building rapport may be the thing that takes the longest time. You may have to have multiple conversations. You may have to go fishing. You may have to work on a project together. You may have to just hang out. You may have to get into a state where you have, you express vulnerability and, and, and you model vulnerability in a way that allows them to be vulnerable. And that can take time with someone who you have a you've developed a poor relationship with in the past. So you, you that has to happen first. In therapeutic models, they would say that, that you're trying to move that person from pre-contemplation to contemplation. Yeah. In. Some of these other models, it just means I'm trying to establish a sense of trust with you, and you could understand this. If you, I bet everyone has a friend who, like, you can like go out and watch a movie with them, and they can hate the movie, and you can love it, but you don't. It doesn't make you hate them or whatever. You you love disagreeing with them about stuff. Yeah, you can disagree, even pol politics. You can disagree with somebody because you know, in the end of the day, they've got your back. You trust them. We're really good at that, and that's that's one of the most uh, powerful things we have as human beings. Like. We can do, there could be three of us on a hill, uh, like in, like, um, this could be pre civilization or post zombie apocalypse. Okay. Your three of us are on a hill. We're looking in three different directions. We need to trust all the people to tell us what they're, what they're seeing and not mislead us. And, but we also could know that like. This person's had a lot of experiences with, with. I like talking about bears. This person mm-hmm. has a lot, of, has had a lot of experience with bears. So when they hear that noise, they're probably going to be more likely to think it's a bear. This person yeah. has never had any experience. This is the first time they've been out here. So they don't, they, I don't know, but you'll know exactly how to modulate your trust in an environment like that. But at the end of the day, what you really have established is I do trust this person ha- ha- is on my side wants to work things out with me. So yeah, step one is build rapport. The. One of the best ways to build rapport in a, in a, in a, if you're don't have, if you're pressed for time is to avoid destroying rapport. So don't say anything that, but don't shame the person and, uh, and really be upfront and say, I'm, I'm interested to hear more about what you, I want to understand why you feel this way, how you feel this way. And if you would be open to it, ask for their permission, ask for their consent and be transparent. If you're open to it, I'd like to explore how you came to feel this way and what you believe about it. And maybe through the course of this conversation, one of us might change our minds about some things. Would you be open to them and, and get their permission to, to move on to the next step. Mm-hmm. The next step is just to ask for the claim, like straight up, like get it in words. Like, what is it that you believe? So what is your claim? What is your proposition? However it is that you can ask it naturally. And then when they tell you what they feel, what they think, um, ask them how confident they are in that. So. Yeah. I recommend using a number scale because it's just sort of an easy way to go about doing it, but you don't have to, but you can say from, from one to 10, zero to hundred, whatever you want. Like, uh, the reason this is so powerful is this is what engages active processing and metacognition, which is something we almost never do for on our own, mm. you can do this on your own. By the way, you could use this whole thing on yourself. If you want to pick anything you believe yeah. right now and go through the steps on your own and uh, let's let's say with that, like, uh, I believe that, uh, reptiles are controlling the planet and, um. <laughs> and then you'd say, well, how, like on a scale of zero to 10 with 10 being, that's 100% true. And zero and zero being as one being, um, that's absolutely not true. Where would you put yourself? Yeah. And that is an interesting moment. Let, let it breathe. Cause most people have never put a number on it. Now you can yeah. try this with anything. Like, how, did you like the last star Wars movie? Like, uh, yeah, it was great. Like, like, like one to 10, where would you put it? Like that changes the way you start thinking. You're like, Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with that number, you can do some things if they're like, uh, if they say they're a one or a 10, they're in, they're still in pre contemplation, which means you need to back up and work on some things and get them back into, get into contemplation, but if they say they're a two or a nine, that means they're not a one or a 10, and you can ask that in different ways. Like if they say they're a seven, you're like seven, how come not a 10? And if they yeah. say they're, if they say they're a five, like, okay, a five, how come not a one? And this starts a conversation and you can you don't even have to do any other steps oftentimes, just having that conversation and that trust will lead to the person moving around in that space a little bit and it engages them to think about the issue in a different way.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: But if you want to go all the way to the end with it, you would then say, um, let's say there are seven, you say, what reasons uh, do you feel support that level of confidence? And now they're going to give you the reasons that they have about the, to, uh, to have that level of confidence. And then you would ask them, what methods are you using? to justify that is a good reason to hold that level of confidence. And mm. you don't have to use this sort of uh language I'm using but that's the what you want to ask and and um I know this is going to sound in, impossible but just asking those questions in that order almost always results in somebody changing their mind. Yeah. Um if it's a belief their confidence is going to go or it's going to be go up or down. If it's an attitude it's going to go closer to positive or closer to negative, and it's a value. It's going to be reconsidered where it goes in the hierarchy yeah. and just loop that and while you're doing that, having that conversation, um, if they, do, if they use terms, use their term. if they define things, like you want to make sure they define things and you use their definitions, not yours, Yeah. listen, ask questions, reflect, paraphrase, and just stay civil. And it becomes a conversation that is instead of a debate, it's now this, uh, You've joined forces, you go, you've gotten shoulder to shoulder and you're trying to solve a mystery together of why do you feel the way you yeah. feel, which is a completely different way of interacting with another human being. And that's what seems to deliver the results. It, they, these are, co- this is called um, technique rebuttal is what they call it. it it's a, yeah. uh, whereas topic rebuttal is just throwing a bunch of facts at somebody, which is okay. If you're a scientist and you're both in the same playing field, you're playing by the same rules and the same epistemology topic rebuttal is fine for most other things technique rebuttal seems to be the way to go, because what you're really exploring is, is the person's own thinking, you're exploring their reasoning, you're exploring their chain of cognition that gets them to a certain conclusion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have a excellent chapter in the book about uh street epistemologists. I started following that YouTube channel. Uh, I was first introduced to street epistemology from uh, Peter Boghossian. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, I was like, oh man, like I, I kind of started learning about those techniques. And I also uh, you know, I I can really relate to them because working in addiction treatment, like you were saying, like motivational interviewing and all these other things, like that's what we do, right? We we challenge our beliefs, we challenge our assumptions, and like, huh, like how how strongly do I feel about this? And just having that little bit of doubt can make you start questioning things and exploring other things. But I, I often think about it as like just planning this kind of like little scene. Like if I can get someone to just like question themselves just a little bit, my job is done. But But this last question for you, all right, it's like two questions, but it might be the same answer. Okay. (laughs) Here's what I'm always wondering, because sometimes all right, and I try to explain like biases or thinking errors or weird beliefs and stuff like that. But I'm like, nobody wants to read this. Nobody's like, Hey, I believe weird things. Let me go find out why. Right. So two questions, right? Yep. What type of people because you've you've gained this large audience. So I know these people must exist. But I'm like, Who are they? Right? What type of people? read your stuff right like who is it is it people who (laughs) is it people who are like i'm i'm thinking very irrationally i want to understand this stuff so it's like who reads your stuff and who do you want to read your new book how minds change right like do you did you find that you brought in an audience that you weren't expecting do you hope this reaches like a new audience you know what i mean yeah
1: i do want this to reach a different audience um i think everyone who's a fan of you of not smart will obviously this is this is on the same trajectory as everything I've had a lot of time to grow as a person, as a journalist, mm. and this, this reflects that, but, um, the fans of you are not so smart, uh, a lot of it's, I get based off the metrics that I have access to, it's, it's pretty stunning that it's, it's very split down the middle men and women, uh, across many different socioeconomic statuses. Um, mm. the age range is all across the board. Uh, there is something, Dan Kahan, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Dan Cahan, yeah. uh He, he put out a paper about scientific curiosity. I'm not a big fan of that term because it makes it seem a little snooty. I think, that tr- I think that turns off some people, but what he's really saying is it's people who love learning that they're wrong about stuff. Like they love, yeah. they love that it's sort of, I just had AJ Jacobs on the show. We talked about this off mic about is that some people solve puzzles just because they love that aha moment. And, and that is it's, they love, uh, that feeling of, I th- I, what I thought was the answer is not even close. That's a, mm. g- a good feeling. Um, I think there's some people who also just like, like I was, when I was a, a teenager, I like, you know, learning like, Hey, do you, uh, you know, like, Hey, do you know, that's not really how you can't really do that. And I love misconceptions that you can drop into a, a conversation, yeah. but you go to enough road trips and done enough parties and you start realizing, Oh, wait, I'm that guy. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, but I think it comes down to, there's a, there's a, some, some of us. I think there are some people, what they like to watch unsolved mysteries and, uh, in search of, and those things. And I loved that as a kid because mm. they like that feeling of, um, um, that, the, that there's a mystery out there that can never be solved and that there's a, um, that, uh, is the, I think there are some people who who really get something out that it really cranks their tractor to get into the argument from ignorance thing. Yeah, And there are other people who I think that, uh, something's happened in their life. A lot of times they came from a really religious household and they, they left it. Uh, so they've gone through addiction like yourself. Um, people who've had some sort of epiphany, some sort of epiphanous experience. And you, once you get the juice from that, you're like, that's, that gave me actual value in life. Yeah. You're like, you you're like, get, describing me so bad. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. Sense. <laughs> and I, th- I think that you are not so smart stuff. Uh, just one of like in the first book, especially, especially some of those are just one or two page chapters uh, it, in two pages, you can get a little, a little hit of that. And you yeah. can, and that, that alerts you that you can do that. It's that old um, Jungian concept of when you learn how to play a game, you also learn, when you learn the rules of a game, you also learn that games have rules. So yeah. when you learn how to play checkers, you're, it's easier to learn how to play chess and so on. I, mean, I think it's also true for that uh, experience of scientific curiosity, where when you do get that burst of like, it's okay to be wrong. In fact, it's nice to to seek out ways that I could be incorrect. It's nice to investigate how I make sense of the world. Um, a little dose of that goes a long way and you, you want more of it. And you want to experience more of it. And, uh, you start becoming a proselytizer for that experience. It's great. What, uh, for a different generation, it was things like the, uh, the demon haunted world, um, mm. or James Randy and stuff like that got people into that space. Um, and then I, I think you were also as smart as just sort of, uh, to grab that torch and kept going with how minds change i am looking to go to a, a broader audience of people who just don't who just don't want to spend time with that stuff It they they it, it feels a little too nerdy for them it feels a little too in the space of uh, uh some sort of there's some sort of elite sn- uh snootiness to it that i think mm-hmm. that turns people off um there are people i look i love the skeptics community and everything but uh there's a contingent of that community that that uses it to become a bully in a certain way that yeah. I feel like turns people away from all these nice things that can come from it. And there's also, a, uh, you know, that there are certain, there's a certain way of communicating people where you're, you're not wanting to educate, illuminate, and help people find a better way of being people. You just want to show them that they're stupid and you're not like, like, I think that the, some people feel that that's what the, that's what the idea is behind some of this stuff, Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that the, how minds change goes to just in, completely broader audience of people who everyone is in a moment right now. We've all lived through about eight full years and some of them in a pandemic of feeling like, oh no, the world's gone mad. There yeah. are people who believe really weird stuff and I'm, I've given up on trying to reach out to them and I'm throwing down the gauntlet here saying there is no one who's unreachable. There's no one whose mm. mind can't be changed. I don't believe that at all. I believe everyone has the capacity to change their mind. I think your frustration is direct. It should be directed at yourself. It's more like, it's like trying to reach the moon with a ladder. And when it doesn't work, saying the moon's unreachable, I feel the same way about all the people who are, who are causing frustration in our lives, people we love, people we care about and at the extremes, people who are, have lots of power, people who are in positions of power, whose minds ought to be changed so that we can like, you know, get in the spaceships and explore the galaxy. Everyone's reachable. It's possible. You just have to have a, and when I started this book, I, I I, kind of, I was really hesitant to get into the persuasion stuff because I didn't want it to be a, a, how to win friends and influence people kind yeah, of thing, yeah. but I wanted it just to be an exploration of the science behind how does a mind change that like what's going on in here when that happens. But it, as it now is presented sort of in three sections, like it's, even though it isn't uh it isn't is it doesn't actually say section one, section two, section three, but hidden in the subtext, it's yeah. how do we how do we develop our models of reality, what we believe, think, and feel? How does that change just through experience? And what happens when experience challenges us? What happened what creates cognitive dissonance and what breaks through cognitive dissonance? And mm-hmm. then knowing all that, how could you encourage that? How could you bootstrap that? How could you catalyze that? And The fact that we've changed our minds about anything, the fact that you don't agree with your diary from when you were like uh, 16 means you have the capacity to change. And that's true of everybody. You just have to have some cognitive empathy, uh, curiosity, compassion, and be transparent in your efforts.
0: Yeah, man. Now. That was such a great way to end this. I feel inspired because like you say, like I have just seen far too many people change right to believe that this is not achievable. Like people can change. I've seen people turn their lives around, stop believing certain things like I love it. And I absolutely love the book. So for everybody listening, we're recording this a a bit early. But when is the release date of this book? And is it is it going to be released internationally on launch or are there like two separate release dates?
1: It's in the United States and Canada, June 21st, 2022. In the UK, it'll be uh, June 23rd. Uh, it's slowly moving through all the other countries. Everybody has different release dates. But for those, it'll be June, the June 21st, 23rd window. Audiobook, every service you don't have, if there are some you don't like buying stuff from, I promise you it's available in all the others too. Uh, I did the audiobook also. So that's a nice thing. If you like the podcast, it's me doing the audiobook. and I actually acted out and I will say I cried in the booth and had to mm. stop working one of the days because at a certain point I have to take on the, I have to speak for people that say some really awful things that really bother me a lot. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, I tried to really deliver the book with you know, authentically and honestly, um, and we just finished creating the pre-order bonuses. I, um, uh, I, I didn't even think I was going to do something like this, but it seemed like it might be fun. I got all the persuasion people that I, I that I, uh, met the people who run those organizations, we actually got together yesterday and did a two hour zoom, uh, oh, sort wow. of round table. Uh, so if you pre-order the book, this is all going to go up tomorrow. Um, if you pre-order the book, you get to watch that a month before everybody else does, you also get a ticket to a Q and a with me and, uh, some like little quick sheets and everything, but. Regardless, you can pre-order now. Pre-ordering helps a lot because it puts it on all the charts. Yeah, um, But yeah, June June 21st, that's when it comes out.
0: Beautiful. David, thank you so much for your time. Can't wait for everybody else to check out this book. And yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime when you write the I next one. I would love one. to. i love to.
1: <laughs> Thanks a bunch. So this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. I could keep that dude here all day just chatting with him about all this stuff, especially with so much going on in the world the last few years, you know. So I'm super glad he was able to come on. But yeah, real quick, fun story. I I think I mentioned it in in this episode. But yeah, uh, my son and I have been reading this and my son's 13 years old. So any of you, any of you parents out there, like I'm sure he probably could have grasped it like last year maybe when he was 11 but probably around 12 or whatever but i've been reading this book with him and i am just just totally amazed at how well he grasped these uh these concepts right like he'll he'll read them you know during the week uh, you know now he's on summer break but he would read them like you know at school and then i'd i'd quiz him on him i'm like hey what's this? What's this fallacy? What's this? What's this, you know, different uh, bias that we talked about in this book, and he's able to like, break it down for me. So yeah, so I'm I'm really like a huge advocate that we as parents, we need to teach our kids to be better thinkers. Like I get very like, pessimistic about, you know, uh, all of us adults, like how much can we really change? So I'm like, well, at least, you know, we can help mold the minds of the young people and help them be better critical thinkers and all that. So if you're a parent, just letting you know, David's books work with kids. All right. But anyways, make sure you head down in the description, make sure you uh, follow David, check out his podcast. He has a lot of great, great guests on there. Like I said, he, uh, his episode, um, like, uh, on that book, uh, on being certain, like wow, introduced me to this book, loved it. One of my new favorites. So check out his podcast, but most importantly, grab a copy of his brand new book, how minds change, if, if it hasn't come out yet, because it comes out on June 21st, make sure you pre-order it. You know what? My birthday is June 23rd, so for my birthday present, I want you to pre-order his book. All right. But anyways, uh, that's all I got for this episode. Before, but before I let you go, a few quick things. Again, if you're new, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Uh, if you're not yet, make sure you're following me on social media at the Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. If you could do me a huge favor, leave a rating, leave a review over on Apple Podcasts, and share this episode. Those things are huge, huge helps. Uh, it helps get the word out to different people. The algorithms love it, all that fun stuff. But some other ways you can help support the podcast. One of them is you can become a paid subscriber over on my Substack, stack, the rewiredsold.substack.com. It's linked down below. It's five bucks a month or $50 for the year. You get all of these episodes a day early and you help support what I do and my reading habit. You can also head over to the rewired soul.com, grab one of the books that i've written if you're interested in learning about more of my journey with mental health overcoming addiction i wrote a book about that i have some other books on mental health i have a book about being canceled uh back in 2019 which was really the catalyst for me to try to learn more about uh human irrationality and everything and i need to do a follow-up because i wrote that before i started learning about all this stuff but anyways that's at the rewired soul.com and lastly, uh, if you are somebody like me who is interested in working on your mental health, there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. That is a service that I have personally used. Uh, you you work with a, a licensed therapist from your state. It's super convenient. You can text. You can video chat and call, whatever it is. And, yeah, it's, it's affordable. So if you're interested in that, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. But, yeah. <clears throat> Other than that, another huge thanks to David for coming on. Make sure you grab a copy of his book or pre-order it if you're listening to this early. And for all of you, all of you wonderful people, have an amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.